All right, hi everybody. Uh, uh, this is this episode's gonna suck. I'm gonna say it right off the top of my head. You know, like the, right right off the top, right off the top. This episode is terrible because Brittany isn't here. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna ruin a bunch of stuff. It's gonna be really, uh, really awkward. But to save us, to save us, uh, like he saved so many other people, is uh, Sean Collins, <laughs> lead organizer for SEIU 200 United and a member of UAW Night. 1981 or do you say like 1981 or is it i think it's 1981 1981 like the year yeah i think that's just the year that they affiliated with like the uaw is that why uh, so seiu is like a a 900 year old organization (laughs) (laughs) no i don't know most of the time it most of the time it's just like that was the order they were organized in so like 1199 is before 1199 i don't know it's no it's like 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 using like aft for example Federation of Teachers, American Federation of Teachers, like Chicago Teachers Union Local 1, UFT, United Federation of Teachers in New York City's Local 2. I don't know what Local 3 is, but that's usually how it is. And then, like, there's a bunch of, like, other locals that are just, like, uh, of significance. Like, the local number is just, like, or local designation is just, like, yeah, 1981. That's when they affiliated. Or there's, like, 1973 in, like, Connecticut as an SEIU affiliate. And it's just because they've organized in, like, the 70s when all the public sector organizing happened. So there's no standard, like, numbering system for for local unions. Sometimes it's just the order. Sometimes it's the year. Sometimes it's, like, some uh, 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 Illuminati num- <laughs> number, number sequence to, to let everyone know that they're organizing in plain sight. I think traditionally it's, like, the, or- the order in which they organize. But then as, like, union locals, like, consolidated or, like, union internationals, like, affiliated with larger internationals, they like change their call designation because like when the news guild affiliated with like cwa like the communication workers um there was already like i don't know for example like a 101 like there was already so they had to like add like a couple numbers on the front of it i I don't know it's like a screen name now my locals and now it sounds like (laughs) it sounds like how i I picked aol screen names it's like xo (laughs) local xoxo uh 42069 (laughs) um unite here 42069 uh, XOXO heart emoji. Yeah. Yeah. I want, now I'm like curious, like I'm going to get on my phone later. Yeah, or go like, find that I'm going to look for like local 69. So I'm just going to type in like every international, like local 69 and see what, <laughs> like who the workers are there or 420 for that matter too. Um, but like SEIU, like the local I work for 200 United, it used to be local 200. And then like the old president of the local uh, was caught caught up in some legal situation and so the union was trusteed which means it was like taken over by the international and then so it was then it was like local 200 a b c and d and then like a couple years ago or over more than a decade ago they like merged them all together and now it's 200 united huh so this service employees international union local 200 united so like i don't know unions in there twice it's just sort of weird but how it goes you know so so nice you unionized it twice (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah so sean uh not only are you with the seiu but you um you also do some editing for a a publication called strike wave you want to tell us what what strike wave is about yeah um fortunately i don't do the editing but i uh i help put together a, a a newsletter an email you know newsletter of every week called strike wave which the the thrust behind it we've been putting it out now for a couple months now since uh late last year um, and the thrust behind it is just to share uh stories of workplace organizing and workplace struggle from a rank and file 
uh, worker perspective rather than uh, a staff uh, dominated and oriented perspective. So while a lot of the folks that are in the editorial collective, including myself, are union staff, like we try to um, bring like, uh, you know, or find and identify stories and that are generated and written by or at least informed more strongly by um, rank and file uh, workers in their unions. Um, so uh, one of the stories we've, and also like other sort of more timeless pieces too, I should say, like we try to have, uh, you know, we try to have pieces that are like current in terms of things that are like organizing and stuff that is happening within the, the broad, broader labor movement, organized labor. Um, but also like pieces that sort of can be more timeless and speak to, you know, they can speak to anyone at any time. So like uh, one of the first pieces we did was like, you know, from Max, a member of the collective and uh, a worker out in California who talked about like organizing as an introvert and just sort of like, you know, something that's like accessible to, well, at least to introverts or, but like maybe to other folks as well. So, uh, so like, where is the, the New York Times might cover uh, a, uh, a strike and say and talk about like the the desires of capital right like how much the the company is losing and, and what and like a, a worker or a, a a customer that can't get whatever it is that they that they want and like oh isn't don't strikes hurt people like mm. strike wave would be saying like here's what happened that caused that like caused us to decide to strike and yeah we uh, or um this is these are the demands uh of because for becoming a union stuff like that yeah what right. drives it and what, what we're trying to accomplish accomplish through whether it be striking or or uh you know organizing or some other form of job action yeah we try to we try to emphasize the, the rank and file like perspective mm. um and also we also try to provide like a as best as possible and as best as we are, are aware of we try to provide like a like a broader context to what's happening so connecting it with something happening across like the industry or uh sort of me and in, in my in my sort of unstated unwritten role as like the upstate correspondent of strike wave uh trying to talk about like the regional context in which a lot of this organizing happens because i think people here in new york or they see new york and they assume you know something that like everything everything is the tent you know is, is sort of touched by the tentacle of of the city which is true but like also like or, the organizing happens sort of in spite of that uh, of that of that octopus that is the new york you know new york city and so um yeah so like with the, like with the one story i wrote several months ago about like tesla organizing out in uh, buffalo tried to paint put that within the broader like uh landscape of uh you know economic development in in upstate new york so we, I, I'm already on the record saying that like my problematic fave is uh, uh, product review videos of products <laughs> that like I'll probably never buy. Yeah. You know, I just like I want to know what every new smartphone does and yeah. like what sort of Snapdragon processor is in it, and I and I'll never buy it. I don't I don't know. I just enjoy the the watching someone with like too much care like go into these devi- these devices yeah, the artifacts. the planet yeah the yeah. artifacts of our time yeah just appreciating the artifact and, um and and one of one of like the best ones i think is like usually rated like seven or eight on youtube just like of any video he was even in like one of the like that that terrible youtube rewind vi- uh video that they put out where they like all the different youtube influencers like have a uh a video that youtube itself uh, produces as like every year is like a uh, like you it's know, like an award like a best of thing or it's just okay, like yeah, you know, yeah. like a bunch of different cameos from and it was it was really bad anyway um uh, he's interviewed Elon Musk like twice 
Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it, and it always hurts a little bit. This guy, uh, MKBHD, is the name of the channel. And he's just like, I, he's, he's got some of like, the nicest, coolest looking videos. Uh, and, and actually, his, his design aesthetic is very you, Sean. He's I've been to your apartment. Like, it, it looks like both, <laughs> both of you could go like, to West Elm together and mm. like, pick out the exact same yeah. furniture. You know, but, he, uh, um, but only he could afford it. Yeah, but but, uh, um, uh, but yeah, then he interviews, and I, so I usually like his his account. But then every once in a while, like twice now, I think he's he's interviewed Elon Musk, and I'm like, oh man, come on, you're getting too close to the the problematic, <laughs> and not enough of the fave. So, what do you think is like the worst thing that Elon Musk has done? What is the worst thing Elon Musk? I think it really is the tunnel, like yeah. the the, yeah. the Tesla tunnel. Well, actually, maybe just like creating a new car company Cause, might cause, be bad. Because like he's like I, I I know all the the arguments for like why you know like. The world would at least be better if we like magically flipped all internal combustion cars for electric cars. Mm-hmm. Like obviously, there'd be a lot clean, a lot more clean technology, and we would actually be like back to I think it, you know like, like nineteen twelve when like a third of cars were electric or something like that. Like there was a, a lot of cars were electric at the beginning, and then Standard Oil or uh, made it so that most of them were internal combustion. But, but anyway. Uh, you know, I I think just like bringing a new car company into the world and trying to find new things to do with cars is still bad because it's not just like the car itself; it's like how the the built environment like forms around the car. Yeah, in order to be yeah. compatible with the car, true it is the thing that's it's that is uh, itself not sustainable. I think like there's always too much focus on cars. Like I mean, another thing that yeah. like the other like there's trucks like vans like all these like this like logistical like vehicle infra you know uh vehicles uh, and uh, and then the infrastructure is really for them to like get stuff from outside the you know from the periphery to the to the the core right and so yeah, yeah. yeah uh, i think my biggest problem with elon musk is his anti-labor uh you know stance and the fact that he's fought labor organizing at his oh, own yeah. uh facilities and that like as somebody who is a recipient of so much of human species, like produced value, like is just, you know, ended up with a outsized claim by like several orders of magnitude. Um, it, it's really uh, frustrating to see them not, you know, uh, be able to just like engage with the working population of their own source of wealth in a way that's like at all fair or at all even like nodding to their humanity or their um democratic agency yeah right because it's like it's like the part about the only difference between like capitalism and communism isn't like what something uh like it's not like where value comes from it's who gets paid for the labor that creates the value right and like under communism the workers get paid for for the value that they create under capitalism, the capitalist does right. Is, you know. So it's, it's, it sucks that like there's all these cool things that like created lots of value, but then people got fucked over to make it not enriched, you so, know, or not too few people got enriched by it. You've read like Graver's like bureaucracy of rules, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. One of the things that I think is like the most like interesting in that was uh, was like, he talks about how like uh, utopia of rules. Excuse me. Yeah, utopia of rules. Um, bureaucracy of rules as far um, but it's a book about bureaucracy and he yeah. talks about it in it like the first essay in there is about like how like capital is like actually like trying to like like what we see capital produce is actually slowing down or it, we're, that's how you you could tell we're in this like late stage of capital because it's not actually producing anything new 
Um, it's just finding new ways to like collect rents off of doing the same thing. So it's you like, just add steps, yeah, yeah. and those steps somehow create money for the capital. It's all social reproduction, yeah. uh, like largely. So like uh, like uh, the uh, internet technology um, and like apps, um, and then like medical technology. So something that can prolong life, but yeah. it's actually not. It's not doing anything to enrich it or better it, uh, right? Um, but just sort of to, to to elongate it, and then yeah, there there's Elon Musk like to come in there and actually, I, I think is the only person who really like challenges like that. Like that's what all capitalists are doing is because he's like, no, okay, yes, I want to I want to live forever. That's why I'm buddies with like Peter Thiel who wants to freeze me. Uh, but I also would like to be unfrozen on Mars where we have a colony, right? Like I th- and and which is like cool. But he's he's all of his means is getting us there. Fucking evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Elon Musk is is interesting because he basically is trying to put uh, truth to the idea that, like, the billionaires are going to, like, get us off of this dying planet and, like, make us an inter, you know, planetary intergalactic species. And um, I don't think that they they will, um, but it's very interesting to see three individual, maybe even four uh, individual men in a private space race right now. Like, that is absolutely crazy i think that you know when i'm talking about the um uh, billionaire problem as being like an existential threat to our species yeah i'm talking about like the fact that three people can individually be in a competitive private space race um and like be able to fund the that type of spending and research independently like that is not democratic those people have the capability of going to space. They have the capability of basically doing anything like possible for, for their own betterment. And like, if they're making AI and, you know, Elon Musk is out here, you know, talking about how it's summoning the demon. And he's like, and I'm going to summon it because, you know, whoever summons it, you're going to have to trust. And you can trust me because right. I'm the good guy. Cool. It's like, yeah, literally every single person who's ever done a horrible, horrible thing on a mass scale has always come with that, um, you know, argument. And uh, it there, it's never been valid. Like, you should never trust anybody who's like, but you can only trust me. And like, what, I don't know if, if you like put like 20 people in the lineup. And three of those people were Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson. And you're like, which one of these motherfuckers do you trust with enough capital and and resources to uh, launch rockets into space and make humanity... Branson. Absolutely. A spacefaring yeah. race. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. That, dude, like, that dude does coke. Right, That's yeah. Cool. yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're going to need to be doing a lot of uppers in order to make this happen. <laughs> to get uh. us to that next phase of humanity. But, I yeah. mean, like... The, but, there's, but, I'm, I, I would, but there's probably a lot more people in that lineup that I would rather have doing it, right? I, than those, than I, those three dudes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I look at, uh, especially SpaceX, and it's like... Yeah, I don't think almost anything is like impossible for for this group of engineers funded and with the purpose of like figuring this stuff out. Like I think they can figure it out. Like I'm not arguing that we shouldn't be an interplanetary species of course, yeah. or that we shouldn't be like exploring space as like one of our serious initiatives. I know that that is like, you know, I'm it's interesting cuz like I'm an environmentalist, right? Like I fundamentally believe that like what we need to do is like save life on this planet. And at the same time, I am very aware that um we also need 
not just because we are factually, you know, incompatible uh, with living uh, the living Earth with our current global economy. Um, we should also be figuring out how to go out into space because I think that if you were to go and muck up space, like in a real way, I don't wouldn't have the emotional and or like uh, moral uh, position to to doing that. Like if you can do it, especially in a way that isn't going to like make it uh, difficult for future travelers and stuff in space because it's right. fucking huge. Yeah, and it's like full. It's of, gonna be hard to it's, fuck up. Space. It, yeah, it's so much stuff like out there. Like, but if anyone it, can fuck up space, it's Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, like for real, like if we're gonna have a, a robotic future. We're going to have, like, you know, rare earth minerals and neodymium magnets and DC electric everything and, like, high efficiency, like, badass automated technology. We can do that if we can find an infinite sink for our waste streams and an infinite source for raw materials. And if you're going to, like, basically get into space for the purpose of, like, asteroid belt mining for the purpose of keeping uh, capitalism going with a living planet... Like, that's, like, a third way <laughs> that I think you could actually advocate for. Because, like, if you, we really could get into space, we could infinitely dump and we could infinitely, uh, you know, yield. And, like, there's something like a billion times more resources in the asteroid belt than uh, that are, like, critical for uh, the operations that our current economy demands than are even available on the outside surface of the crust of our planet. They, the call, they call them rare earth middle, minerals for a reason, folks. Yeah, so there's, it, there's a real... Rare on earth but yeah it doesn't mean they're rare everywhere yeah right? like if yeah. you're gonna say all right awesome smartphones are cool we're gonna have an infinite future with smartphones we're gonna have an infinite future you know with the tvs and laptops and everything else then you're talking about a space-faring civilization and to get there like <laughs> in, like on the short side of things like i don't know like i, I think that that's that's a, a goal worth uh you know uh, striving for Captain Janeway pointing at the asteroid belt. There's iPhones in that asteroid. Yeah, yeah, for real. I, like, because I, ultimately, like the space elevator is like the kind of technology you really need to be able to uh, overcome the um, gravity well situation that keeps us uh, Earthbound. But if and we don't have the, the materials right. for this, the, the space elevator, like we don't have anything that has a strength to weight ratio required to basically span from the surface of the planet to like uh, in a geosynchronous orbit with a, um, you know, like constant elevator system, which by the way is super badass. And I think that that would be a project worth considering doing on the moon, which has like a massive uh, reduction in gravity. So we could potentially do it with like existing materials right now. If we built a moon elevator, that'd be a really interesting proof of concept. Isn't this like the whole like, Geosynchronous like space elevator, isn't there's like a major plotline on like, the Mars trilogy, right? Like as yeah. they, they build it and then it, it they the fucking what's this guy's name, Bogdanov or something like that is who's basically the stand-in for like Trotsky in the in the books. Like he like does a terrorism and it, it comes fucking crashing down on Mars Whoa. and it causes pretty like serious. Yeah, it like wraps like two thirds around. No, uh, it's not that long, is it? It's pretty long. It wraps around the planet as the planet spinning. The Coriolis effect turns it into a giant whip, and it comes down and basically is the equivalent of like heavy aerial bombardment on a huge yeah. strip. Oh my God. Here's the thing about space travel that, like, the practical thing that I always like, I'm curious about is so, like, you know, they do the spacewalks, for instance. Um, they go out there and they're fucking 
I don't fucking know. They're replacing the shingles on 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 the space station or whatever they're called. But cleaning the gutters. Cleaning the, yeah, cleaning the gutters. gutters. Yeah. But so if you like, you know, you're in space. You're you you know, and you 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 know, you're ner- fucking nervous probably or whatever the fuck. You're like you're like out in space. Everyone's watching you. Yeah, yeah everybody's, I mean, everybody's watching. The whole you, world you, is watching. Also, and you you're the whole world is watching. The most drop, hostile environment, like, imagine. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and you drop a fucking screwdriver, which apparently this, like, happens, like, all the time. And so, like, spinning around Earth is, like, all this, like, debris. Oh, yeah. Uh, pl- plus, like, the fucking satellites. And so the thing of... Uh, and, and then the satellite debris, like, when uh, India famously shot down with a, uh, like, a surface-to-orbit uh, missile... A um, they're one of their own defunct satellites. They That's create right. something like ten thousand um, pieces of uh, like debris that are big enough to like punch a hole in the ISS that's like yeah. you know like they'd need to repair in minutes so that's the thing dying. I'm that's the thing I'm Jeez. thinking about when it comes to space travel is just like all that debris like if you like what if you're like what if you like I don't know exit orbit at the wrong moment and then you just get hit with like a space fucking you know screw that you dropped like a couple years ago when oh you, and it's yeah and it's, it's, your just fucking, own, it's your own it screwdriver fucking, it just shreds your shit or yeah. it shreds any like, like how do you deal with the space debris problem I remember when uh, was it like Skylab that was uh crashing or it was like some sort of big piece of hardware out in space was uh having a controlled descent into the atmosphere and taco bell rolled out a big um uh a target in the south pacific and they're like if any part of this thing that's fallen out of the sky hits a target everyone gets a free taco that fucking like rolls. every single human being gets a free taco and it, and it didn't happen but that was such a good idea that was so cool. I, yeah. I, I don't remember well, what, what piece of uh, space crap fe- fell out of the earth like that, but I do distinctly remember that, that stunt, and it was wonderful. Yeah, people really they should do that again. for it. Yeah. Well, but I did get a free taco. Sean and I both got a free uh, uh, taco when we went to the Valley Cats game last, uh, what was that, like two weeks ago now? Yeah, I got two of those yeah. things. Yeah, they were just handing them out. What? Uh, you know, like, who, who is handing out free tacos? Taco Bell. Wow. Well, they, well, they don't hand out the taco. They hand, hand out a coupon to go get a taco. And the Taco Bell is, like, right next to the, the ballpark. Brilliant. It, they, wow. they do, like, something where it's, like, you know, if a run happens in the third inning. How much does a every- Taco Bell taco cost? Like, 80 cents? I mean, to produce, probably, like, negative 5 cents. <laughs> no, but for real, like, it's probably a good deal for them. Cause oh, absolutely. they could bring yeah. in somebody for the free taco. They're probably going to buy, you know, like, a couple double-deckers, maybe Crunch Wrap Supreme, you know. Mm. Baja, yeah, you always gotta get the Baja. <laughs> it's got Pepto in it. Pepto. Right, that, that's the theory, right? Is that's that, my yeah. It's yeah. a theory that we have. Uh, is that like, whoa, whoa? If you're gonna come on the Iron Weeds <laughs> and start talking about <laughs> conspiracy theories, you you better have brought receipts. <laughs> I just think that like, if you, have you ever had a meal at Taco Bell compared with the Baja Blast and then been sick afterwards? And I think the answer is like likely no. Baja Blast was that that was the uh, the drink. Yeah. The, the the so you think the blue drink the special ha- Mountain Dew yeah has Pepto in it? I think so. I think that's so. wild, dude. Because yeah. <laughs> I've never got if I if I have a Coke with my meal, like I have like a Taco Bell related, like you know instigated like bowel movement. But if I have it with the <laughs> with if, Baja I have, if I have it with the Baja Blast, I'm fine. Oh, interesting. I yeah. believe this five hundred percent. I'm on it. Or maybe you, you've just independently discovered a uh, second you know, medicinal use for Baja Blast. Yeah, yeah, or that. Yeah, it's like some like yeah, it's the it's like off brand FDA unapproved. Uh, yeah, 
medicine. Yeah, I want to be prescribed like, a soda fountain. Just like I have to have this in my house. Medicare pays for it. It's a Baja <laughs> Blast fountain. Yo, I've been going. I've, I've been going through so much uh, seltzer at, that at this point, I'm just like the material cost of carbonating all this water and storing it, and then like these cans and recycling is completely worth it. Well, it's pretty. It's pretty great. But I'm just saying, you know, I got to figure out a way to uh, do it that isn't, you know, the soda stream because, like, I don't know. All my lefty friends are like BDS, yo, yeah. BDS, and I'm like, all right. I mean, you know, Palestinian human rights are uh, something to uh, definitely respect. Every time I, I, I see a lefty friend, a lefty Jewish friend, fellow uh, lefty Jewish friend uh, um, with a soda stream, like we lock eyes and we both look at the soda stream <laughs> and we're just like, yeah, but seltzer. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I, and we, we just put like, I, both, I'm sure se- there's a competitor. self crit like in our own eyes to each other. And that's. Yeah. And then you just move on. Then you just move on. You just you have to move on. Speaking of moving on, (laughs) (laughs) we read uh, something you just published uh, on Strike Wave. Getting back to Strike Wave about um, Spot Coffee, right? Yes, that's in Buffalo. Um, There are locations like across like the Northeast, but it's headquartered out of Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and how many uh, Spot Coffees have unionized? So. So yeah, there's there's like a dozen and a half like look stores and location across like upstate New York, and there's like one in Connecticut. And after two separate union elections, the store in Rochester first organized, and then um, four more locations organized in and voted to unionize in Buffalo. And what like how how unlikely is it that a place like a uh, like a fast food or a coffee shop gets unionized right like that's we don't hear that very often it's usually a lot of people that i'm like either it's skilled labor or it's a lot of full-time people right but i imagine there's a unique challenges to service industry unionizing yeah uh, i think so in the in the sort of broader like hospitality and service industry like well in the broader like hospitality industry like the unionization rate is like be a little over like four or five percent i might be understating it a bit there um but you know so the restaurant workers or like service you know workers in in fast food chains represent like a really small corner of that um of the that organized uh you know and then nationally that workforce that's organized and you know doing you know engaged in collective bargaining um so like in penn station uh for example people don't realize this but like um like the Dunkin' Donuts and all those places are organized because they're all operated by uh, like uh, food service uh, contractors. But other way, other places, other franchises um, in fast food, uh, they're largely unorganized in the United States. That is, and then from there, even like sort of like non-chain one-off like restaurants or small regional chains like Spot. Um, yeah, we're talking about barely 2% nationally are organized, like of 14 million workers, like barely 2% of those folks are organized. Hmm. And, uh, why is spot different? Yeah. So spot coffee is this, uh, is this regional, is this regional change headquartered out of Buffalo and I think out of Toronto as well. It's at, like two corporate headquarters. Um, and, uh, for years it had been this like small regional chain, but, uh, it increasingly had taken more of a corporate turn and started to franchise and stuff started to franchise or like it started to like uh so i didn't touch on this in my article but it it has a lot of saudi money invested in it oh um 
and so that's you when you you know i think from there like that that motivation and uh, uh, you know that in, you know sort of instigated the motivation to start um franchising but basically like there are franchises and then there are corporately control there are more like direct franchise arrangements and then there are are some corporate controlled franchises which are like franchises that are just essentially owned by members of the board of directors um that turn in the company sort of you know motivated uh some of the workers to start talking about organizing and also some other things like the introduction of more uh tipped uh work tipped workers or workers in the workforce being classified as tipped workers um which you know are paid a sub-minimum wage and that motivated a lot of the organizing along with sort of a lot of the standard issues in service industry yeah so how how does that uh tipped worker uh minimum wage uh typically roll out to people within the broader like food service you know industry because i know that like most fast food workers are don't count as tipped workers even though I think some franchises allow for tip jars and things like I think I'm pretty sure I've yeah. tipped every time I've been at like a Dunkin Donuts, for example. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that they would uh, see themselves as, uh, you know, a tipped worker yeah. in the sense that they are getting like 20 percent like per table kind of um, situation. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, I, I, it's a good question. I don't know that I don't I'm not going to say that I know the, the legal framework about how that happens, but uh, or how that is stimulated. But um, in the case of Spot, like yeah, there's there's the same tip jar that you and I see. You know, when we all see when we go to any of these ca- like cafes or coffee stores that we go to, and um, they just use that. It seems like as an impetus to introduce more tipped workers, and and then I think it's also like New York State like minimum wage law is just. And I try to touch on this in the article is just of is just like a mosaic of all these different. Uh, regional wage frameworks uh, industry specific wage frameworks and so this tips worker classification it's not it's 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 not unique to new york there are like 42 other states mm-hmm. that have the tip wage like which is the sub minimum wage based on the assumption that you will be receiving tips that will supplement your wages um and so that wage is set like at a, at a fraction they're assuming like 20 percent of your wages will then be supplemented by tips the, the receiving of tips um so that's not unique to new york but what is sort of unique to new york is from there is this, this mosaic of various tipped wages based on industry different industries so farm workers have a specific minimum wage um fast food workers have a specific minimum wage um there's a minimum wage for um, other service workers like uh, doorman and stuff like that. Yeah, there's also a movement to do away with um, uh, tipping as a uh, you know main wage uh, category, like mm-hmm. to to eliminate it and take whatever costs that goes say into like say, say food service and uh, have that you know uh, go into the price and basically have it be tipping is not a cultural need for the survival of uh, service workers, yeah. but is like appreciated as a gratuity and probably evolved to be like potentially even less than 20% if people were already getting paid like a living wage to be a service worker in the first place. Yeah. And that that's, um, I, I've heard arguments uh, for and against that by people, bartenders and wait, wait staff and stuff. And uh, one of the biggest arguments for it is to take the uh, power dynamic, especially the, gender-based and sexual uh, power dynamic from um, the the working uh, environment for a lot of like young women. It sucks that Brittany's out here because she's been a bartender for so long and done a lot of other service industry stuff. And I think if she was here, she she has a pretty nuanced and sometimes critical take on removing tipped minimum wages because like 
the, I, and I, I'm going to try to reconstruct the argument, but essentially, you know, like a, a minimum wage of like, say, 15, 15 bucks an hour. <laughs> right, uh, you know, um, uh, wouldn't equal what she makes on like a good night, yep. right? Yeah, where, where like you you could go home with the equivalent of like thirty dollars an hour yeah, yeah, or something yeah. like right. And, and I think like the thing with uh, you say in your article, Sean, that um, is something like you know one of the guy you have a quote from a guy that says like I take home like a hundred and twenty bucks in yeah, tips precisely. a week. Yeah, right. And it was like and like some people a lot of tipped workers that are. Just, uh, justifiably categorized as such might make that in a night, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he it, takes it, that home in a week. Yeah, and so the tipped worker thing is really just used to screw him, not to like actually benefit him. So I think like what, what would be cool would be if like if a unionized service industry would get to decide what's best for the worker in terms of tipped versus untipped, right? Rather than as a as a as a customer, like what's more convenient yeah. or good? I, I don't know, Sean. What, what, that seems complicated. I mean, yeah, I think like right, like I think there are like even within the sort of like tipped worker classification, there's you know it's not written in in any law law or regulation, but there are degrees um, of which like that yeah that benefits or doesn't benefit the worker. I think it's it can, there's a correlation to be made to like workers who make a commission but i would make the point that like uh yeah like unionization uh, you know the the introduction you know of collective bargaining into that arrangement um changes the the parameters and i think that's like i think it's like something that's always generally missing from these wage or these uh regulatory frameworks is that like they try to fill in the void uh uh of uh you know of a, a you know in the fill the void of a lack of a movement, uh, a lack of organizing, organizing in a in a given workplace or a given industry or around a given issue, where they try to, you know, they try to provide this like universal baseline, like paid family leave or like increasing the tips minimum wage. Just like, of course, like materially for anyone who's making a tipped uh, wage, that'll that will raise their that like very clearly it will raise their wage floor. They'll make the same as everybody else. Um, but in the case of like. Uh, a bartender vis-a-vis like a, a barista or like someone who's just like working a cashier like that how how they interface and, and how they collect tips and how they how they interact with their their customers is is different it's a yeah, it's a different framework the, the value that the customer base also uh, puts on the service is entirely contextual like yeah. if you're like a uh, cashier at target um and you're having you know an, an exchange that lasts you know up to potentially like a minute or two with signing a check or something and you're like bagging all their groceries or whatever that's considered something that like if they were tipped automatically or they were asked for a line for the tip at the end they would be like what the fuck you know meanwhile those are you know minimum wage workers that are you know like moving their bottled water like at an un uh you know uh, ergonomic uh, fashion and all, all this other uh stuff um whereas you know if they're at a bar and yeah. they you know the bartender pours them a pint takes like 15 20 30 seconds they'll like at the minimum like drop it like a dollar on like a you know five dollar drink and like not even think about it and it's not like that person who's pouring the 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 pint didn't deserve the dollar it's like you know sure, it's yeah. like a very d- different type of dynamics and it's interesting going to uh countries that don't have tipping mm. as like a cultural thing and that it is like actually insulting like you know straight up um and that they generally have living wages paid for you know taxi cabs or literally anything else that in america um is uh survivable only based on the gratuity uh of uh customer base if they receive it like i think that's the other thing that's like you know especially like 
you know, with the use of credit cards and credit card transactions and you add your tip on there. Like I, you know, it's like you have to wonder as a, as the customer, does that actually pass off to the, to the, to the, the waiter or the bartender? I, I feel like it's gotta, right? Like in the sense that that would be the basis of, you know, organizing like immediately, like across a huge class of I'm people sh- that, you I'm know, sure use credit cards. I'm sure it, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure it does. I just think that there's like, I mean, and we know in like the service industry that that's, that, that is the, 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 the venue of like some of the, mo- the worst wage theft. Um, yeah. That so we see. so I, I, I learned that from a uh, kitchen nightmares also. Mm. So is that mostly on like a per, uh, you know, employer uh, basis, you know, it's like the, the behavior of an employer to garnish the credit card provided tips. I, I mean, I, I think it, I think it happens. Like I, I can't, I, I mean, like I know like locally, like dinosaur barbecue, right? Like the, the, it's a regional chain that was like accused of, um, of wage theft. I don't know the, you know, I don't know the specifics of why it's, you know, there's litigation around it being a, you know, a, a wage thefter, but, um, it, it's something that happens. It's something that's more common in this industry. I think, so one of the things I touched on in, in the, in the article is one of the things that makes the organizing, of the service industry more uh, challenging and, and reason why unionization is so low um, is because it's so balkanized. Like you have, of course you have these big chains of uh, fast food uh, chains uh, or restaurant chains, Chili's um, or like fast Apple. casual. Yeah. Fast yeah. casual Chili's and Applebee's and, and then, uh, or even, you know, red lobster. And or, they have and, a lot of small business employers. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then from there it's all like, and then, so you have these chains and then you have all these franchising arrangements. Um, and so like you, ha- you introduce, like through that, you introduce a different, a, a variety of different kinds of actors that you, it's hard to, you know, to speculate any or to draw any, you know, generalized correlations about what other business practices. But it's, I, it happens. We know it happens. The, you know, wage theft and the theft and the garnishing of, of tips. You know, even if, even if like a sort of incidentally. Um, and so, like in the article we were talking about, right? Like, uh, or, or that we're, you know what we're talking about. Um, Corey uh, Johnson, uh, worker out in Rochester, talked about how like um, wage uh, the tips that are just thrown in that bucket, uh, you know, throughout the day are then distributed the next day to all the workers on the previous shift based on the number of hours that they worked. Um, and so, like you know, you know, it depends. You know, you, t- how, you if he's only coming away with like a hundred and twenty dollars in chip tips, and uh, you know, a week. Uh, you know, we can you can correlate from there. You can you can sort of guesstimate from there, like, well, how many folks work in the in, in the store on a given day? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you're talking about like, you know, unlike in a restaurant setting or unlike in a in a bar setting where the tips are sort of to your point, like it's like you throw down a dollar for every drink that you order. Like, how many folks are sort of just like tossing their change into that tip bucket? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, it's it's so 120 dollars spread out across in his store. There's like 12, 15 workers. Um, you know, most of them are part time, and he's full time, so he's walking away with only one hundred and twenty dollars in tips. It's like, yeah, there's not a lot of folks realize, and he talks about this in the story, where I talked about this with him. As like, he a lot of his customers didn't realize that he was a tipped worker and relied on those tips for income. Um, and so, actually, as a result of the organizing, he actually saw an increase in in the tips that he received as people realized that this was like a like something that they relied on. But I think I think ultimately, though, it's his him being classified as a tipped worker is is just a deliberate attempt by the employer to just pay a suboptimum wage to folks. Hmm. Uh, I would also imagine, like, when you think of, like, where's the, the points of control, and you really don't have to imagine this happens, right, is uh, uh, the points of control or, or like, non-knowledge of the workers of, like, what where money comes from 
it was like you would have a situation where you know especially with a jar right a lot of the money comes in like on a on a, ru- a lunch rush mm-hmm. right and then you have a, a shift to cover that lunch rush uh, but then if you show up a little bit after that like are you entitled to the tips before mm. you got there or after yeah. or like or as a bartender right you put down a bunch of beer and then your shift ends and there's still t- open tabs and like you haven't gotten those those tips collected because the tab is still open right there are all these different moments mm. where like you leave uh tips on the floor basically and you have to switch and if a boss is deciding what happens to those or at least even just like sets the rules for it right then like those are moments where they can skim in between because you don't actually know how much tips you would have gotten when you left or when your shift ended yeah right and and so if workers get to decide amongst each other how to handle those situations uh i think the capitalist in you would say like that's worse right because you don't have a third-party arbitrator Mm. to decide that when in because everyone will naturally deceive you deceive each other in some sort of, like, game theory scenario. When, in fact, most people just, like, re- recognize this shared humanity that, like, I don't want to fuck you over because we work together. And if I fuck you over, you'll eventually fuck me over. And it's just, like, that's a dumb... It's also just, like, a yeah. mean way to live your life. Mm-hmm. And so, like, usually I think you would get more equitable tip tri- uh, uh, tip sharing and distribution if everyone is deciding for each other how to how to distribute those in those situations where like your shift ends in between yeah. the allocation of tips. So, you know, the idea of like having, you know, uh, a democratic say in your workplace is, you know, pretty foreign to the vast majority of Americans, you know, sure. like that we, we live in a, um, in a, in a country that goes to war, blows up whole nations in the, you know, the, the name of freedom and, uh, democracy. Right. And we, we, we always say, Oh, we're bring democracy to this, you know, uh, area held by these evil dictators or whatever. And it never really works out that way. But if we even really value democracy, like as a nation, it's pretty weird that the vast majority of our adult lifetimes are spent in incredibly undemocratic institutions regime change your boss (laughs) but like you know the idea of of, uh like putting in a uh democracy into the workplace is one that i think is gaining a lot of popularity in 2019 you know like uh i've been a long time listener to professor uh, richard wolf um who has a uh, outfit called democracy at work where they try to uh see what they can do from a sort of shared history of um, the legal process and sort of uh, background in economic uh, models that, you know, work within the marketplace that we're in right now to uh, create worker co-ops from existing institutions. So if you either want to start a worker co-op, they can help you there. And if you want to organize to potentially take over a factory that I don't know is potentially being threatened to be, um, you know, uh, offshored and, uh, you know, uh, if your factory is going to be closed, one of the things that can potentially happen would be to force your local legislature uh, legislature to um, require the uh, owner of a factory that's going to put it offshore to 
sell the factory itself and the jobs to a worker co-op of the people that are about to be laid off and allow the existing factory to basically continue to work on like in an off-brand type of you know operation or whatever what was it called like right of first refusal or something basically you get like the first like if you're if 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 the boss wants to put the company up for sale Mm. the worker the workers collectively get the first crack at buying it for like a fair quote-unquote fair market rate or something like that it's the same thing happens with like a tenants in buildings like if your landlord sells a building there's like different legal statutes that you could get you can have put in place in regions called right of first refusal where Interesting. Like everyone and all, they, all, all of the tenants could have the first option to buy the building before it gets put on the market and so how do they determine pricing in the, that scenario yeah well that's where like words like reasonable show up in legal text I yeah mean, i'm not a lawyer but yeah. like you know, like the word reasonable shows up which is usually like whatever some capitalist judge decides is. yeah I, I think that the there's a bunch of really interesting ideas about how to bring more democracy to the workplace and worker co-ops i think are a really uh, awesome um and scalable but albeit scalable in the same uh, sense that the workers movement and labor organizing in the form of unions is scalable it's like scalable in the fact that it could really be pretty much anywhere uh people could organize and form unions but they have to do it everywhere yeah they have to individually like do the work of convincing people to essentially um it's like a soft form of uh, mutiny yeah. within an organization to 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 organize and say, "Hey, uh, we're now united uh, essentially against your uh, profit interests for our wage and uh, benefit interests, and we're going to be in this perpetual struggle for the remainder of our days." Yeah. Yeah. And that that's like that's one way to do it. That's one way to do it. And like the worker co-op kind of owning the decisions and the consequences of um, deciding people's wages, deciding, you know, how much vacation people have and the various, you know, competitive nature of the market, blah, blah, blah. Like that's another way to do it. And then, you know, there's, you know, full uh, communism. (laughs) So like, like, no, yeah, I think that. So thinking about like, you know, what you're talking about, like how do we cooperatize like more of the of the economy? And I think it's like first and foremost, like we have to figure out like how like we had to introduce like the idea of like cooperative democratic workplaces to folks at a, at a, at a broader level. And and so I think we can look at history. Right. And we could see that like when labor uh, organized labor was sort of at its you know, zenith. Right. Um, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the American workforce was organized. Um, is you see them experimenting a lot with more cooperative models. You see it, they like RWDSU, the retail uh, wholesale and uh, department store union um, uh, ha- owned and operated. Well, not owned, but it, it operated, you know, through cooperative uh, arrangements, uh, housing uh, projects, 1199. Now, you know, 1199 SEIU did the same. And so, you only see that really when you know organized labor is you know large and has the financial largesse to experience, experiment more with like these models and and then I think and I think most importantly you have more workers who understand you know uh, democratic you know uh, you know understand that work the workplace can be a democratic venue um, and uh, and then it can also bring that to places outside of work. Um, but we're not, you know, the American labor movement isn't there at that, you know, as, as, isn't there anymore. Right. And those housing cooperatives are largely gone. Those housing arrangements are largely gone. And and um, so instead, what we have to do is we have to we have to through organizing introduce, you know, more consciousness that, you know, the workplace actually can be this democratic yeah. venue. It, I mean, I think that's what makes spot like so exciting is that like these are largely young workers um, 
who are working maybe their second or third job, um, and they're going to continue to work for the rest of their their fucking lives, basically. If you know, uh, if we're lucky, if we're if they're yeah, if yeah. they're lucky, well, you know, if, if we're lucky, if the Earth isn't a burning cinder. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the rest of their lives until you know, until the, that heat death um, moment, and um, they're certainly not going to likely you know likely have the opportunity to retire. Or you know, or at least the same way as other folks you know have, like Boomer Generation has. And so, what they're going to do is they're going to take this organizing experience from them at, at, a, at some coffee store, and they're going to take it to wherever their next place yeah. of work is, um, and, and and continue to to you know to plant that seed of of you know actually no workplace democracy is like something that is possible. I know because I I helped cultivate it at my old workplace. Yeah, it's it, whenever there's like a right wing think piece that comes out um, lambasting public uh, school education for you know teaching socialism, I get like super excited. I'm like, holy shit, are they teaching like democratic decision making processes and or like uh, the idea that there ought to be like a sharing of the the work and the benefits of it. Uh, it's the whole society. And I'm like getting like really excited, and then it's like, no, it's just like a teacher and some local middle school talking about pronouns you know and uh and like yeah so it would be awesome if that was a thing like we we were able to somehow have um our democratic uh sensibilities as a nation politically supposedly uh to work into our understanding of the economy more broadly and then the um actual decision making um uh forces within any given institution more Mm -hmm. you know locally and generally uh, it'd be cool if that was a thing taught in the public schools yeah. or otherwise. Well, I think that's what makes like the organizing of like the co- the cafe or like the restaurant so exciting. Is this like it's this it's this thing that everyone goes to? You know, um, you know, people go grab their cup of coffee, they read a book there, they meet up with friends there, they grab a bite to eat there, um, and by organizing and, and by introducing. Like, you know, by introducing the, 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 the notion of a democratic workplace into that sort of environment, like it will rub off on customers um, who will maybe take that back to their workplace. And so I think that's what makes this like organizing drive so exciting is it's like not well, two, one of two reasons why it makes it so exciting. I think it's, it's exciting that there, there's finally, um, you know, there seems to be at least an upstate and at least in this corner of upstate, uh, some movement in terms of organize that. And the workers there have a lot of ideas about what they would like to see come from their victory besides their own self-interest. But, but like also like younger folks or other, you know, workers at other locations also go there and interface with these folks. And, and so Corey talked about in Rochester after they organized, like they would come to the store, like customers would come to the store. It's like, I'm, this is the union cafe. I only go to this cafe now. Um, Historically, if we look at the data, like most most folks have always supported unions. Mm-hmm. I think um, um, it's it's always been a majority of people. This is me speculating a little bit. They support them, sort of you know, sort of vaguely and idealistically. It's like the, they they are good, like the troops. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Like... I actually, yeah, um, and um, and so when the, you know because of that, they you know like they have they, they have that support but they they don't actually encounter it and then they, when the notion of it is brought up in their own space like they get really like they get scared and fearful because they know what happens um, um but being able to go to places that one commonly goes to and interface with someone who is in a union i think is is different i think that's why like it's the same reason why like nurses like nurses or, I mean nurses organizing is, is very complicated and, yeah. and and contested but also they're the most trusted american worker um, people love their nurses, them and them and teachers, and so like that. 
like creating more venues where one interfaces with someone who is in a union, uh, healthcare, education, or just simply like where you grab your coffee in the morning is, is super exciting. You know what, what uh, uh, put ice in my veins was uh, I, I was looking at a list of, um, well, it was a list of something, it was basically like uh, uh, where the capitalists are going to put their money down on like the next startups list, you know, like oh, list no. of most anticipated might have been IPOs or something. And um, the number one, like, capitalists are uh, rubbing their hands, can't wait to get their hands on this thing, was basically uh, an Uber for nurses. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. like, and, like, organizing 1099 part-time labor for care workers and nurses. Oh, like, in the home? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't read that far into well, like, it. I don't you, know. You show, you show up at the uh, hospital and you're like... Um, I'm going to get the nurse X tonight, the business class. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, no. no, no, I think it was more like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was more like, a, um, it, you can, it, it's an, it's like a timesheets where like you just, mm. you, you sign into this app and today I am working at this, uh, clinic at tomorrow. I'm working at this hospital. Uh, the next day I'm working at that, uh, um, care center yeah. that or, you know this retirement facility so it's just to keep uh the the labor pool of nurses as liquid and mobile and like you know uh, disconnected to their fellow nurse as possible absolutely yeah well, I that, think that's what that is yeah that sounds terrible the yeah. vulcanization of like the workforce has long been underway it start it goes back to like the auto industry um and Ford, uh, and or like not Ford, but like the, at Ford and GM and and uh, oh my God, Chrysler, um, and sort of one of the responses to organization, you know, before these factories were relatively efficient and and the companies therefore were like really profitable, but then they wanted to uh, be ha- you know the auto workers controlling in you know manufacturing and and the the assembly line in one factory was bad for the companies and so that led to like they had a lot more like through striking and the withholding of their labor, they had a lot more power. So what, uh, you know, the auto industry did was move things around parts manufacturing and sort of the peripheral manufacturing to the overall car was sort of taken, you know, broken down into different pieces. And then, and then the assembly was done, you know, somewhere else, whereas all these things used to happen under one roof. And, um, in doing so, like that introduced, like that it balkanized the workforce and then it became easier to, uh, you know, to outsource these things and move this um, sort of manufacturing, uh, you know, abroad. Um, and so like now, like that's part, like it's part of the reason why like the American auto industry is struggling because it's, it's a uniquely American phenomenon. It's not really something that the rest of, you know, other car c- companies do as much um, or the rest of the world does. Um, right. So if you went to yeah. like a, like a Fiat or a Hyundai or a Toyota yeah. outside of the United States, yeah. you would find, uh, an efficient system, system, the system that capitalism is always supposed, supposed to, to provide, yeah. right? Where uh, all of these parts under one roof, all put together in the si- same simultaneous system, connected system. Whereas in the United States, there's this like built-in inefficiencies that are only made efficient at the level at which it makes sense to keep capital, or sorry, keep labor separated diffuse, out yeah. yeah and diffuse and you see and you so see you that go everywhere. from like like northern louisiana is like where your windshield is made and then you go up through arkansas and you have like uh the tires and yeah. and everything else and then just like it takes all the way up the mississippi your all the different parts of your car 
come together before they're finally assembled in Dearborn, Michigan or something. And it's not just uh, labor organizing that that's trying to thwart. It has a lot to do with uh, building into the um, uh, network of the local uh, and national uh, political assemblage. Absolutely. uh, You know, a way of lobbying effectively by Mm -hmm. saying, like, you know, supporting this automaker uh, or its, you know, approved agenda in the, like, uh, American Legislative and Exchange Council, ALEC, that drafts like you know the majority of um, the regulations on industry like their themselves yeah it's a clearinghouse um, of different sorts of regulations and states can just pick it up and adopt it right? yeah yeah, yeah but, and, that's where like stand your ground laws came from it's just yeah like, yeah a lot of you write some generic law and then other states pick it up and yeah and a lot of uh, things that are associated with environmental protections and yeah. labor laws and a whole bunch of other stuff um uh, go through that uh you know organizing body um, i think right to work was an alec project yep yeah well yeah so so in the same way that like the military industrial complex also operates this way where like yep. the idea of ever getting on a long-term peace footing with like the rest of the world um, is a, the process of eliminating jobs in every single like you know federal uh, electorate uh, subsection like in the entire country and so you know one of the things that I, I whenever I see this uh, Marion Williamson uh, Department of Peace um, I always think of like oh that'd be crazy awesome if there was a politician that could get into office on the federal uh, level and uh, declare essentially war powers in the same way that we retooled for world war uh one and two where suddenly if you're making cutlery you're making bayonets and if you're making trucks you're making humvees and everything else to like make the war actually work it was like direct government takeover of the private industry and the free market um and if you were to have that level of authority uh, for actually generating a long-term better outcome for the vast majority of people, so like a full conversion to uh, renewables, a uh, way of creating uh, technology and uh, policy that allows for cities to be way more ecologically sustainable for the long-term you know, benefit of not only themselves, but the externalities and uh, waste that they generate. You know, Because I, I, I don't know how you get out of being on a perpetual war footing in terms of the the meat and potatoes of what it does to an economy other than just completely retooling on a federal level yeah yeah what was the the the, uh um right just uh over the hudson and to the north of here there's a um oh yeah a a factory that made like the brake pads for 787s or something right what was it uh yeah honeywell honeywell Honeywell. yeah Yeah, yeah. i've worked right next to that plant for uh the last uh like 11 years right yeah it's 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 a it's a big plant it it uh employs pro- like hundreds of people a couple hundred yeah, yeah a couple hundred people and, and uh and they only make like one part of the airplane and, and a bunch of other things that are like you know like rubber materials but it's like you know the, yeah it's like brake pads right yeah, yeah it's, it's a brake fr- pads. friction material right and you and you do that so that uh paul tonko or whoever you know like whatever uh um congressional representative of that area is now all of a sudden like needs to have boeing like on oh, their yeah. side yeah and because, you'll see this with elizabeth because otherwise warren, it'll too. go away yeah. yeah yeah that's why elizabeth warren like isn't so enthusiastic about healthcare, right? It's like yeah. so many healthcare companies are headquartered in Massachusetts, and, and also uh, peace because so many much uh, you know parts for 
all of their death machines are also made, you know, within the jobs with within our constituency. Yeah, how and, much how much MIT is involved in making not, oh, o- not only in Jeffrey oh Epstein and the MIT Media Lab, <laughs> but also like the you know like how, how much of like you know what, like what would Boston Dynamics do with their robot dogs if they're not well, like running people down in Palestine? Yeah, right? exactly. You know? Stri- strictly uh, humanitarian purposes. Sure, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but like you know, it's it's hard to have um, you know a lot of uh, investment in those because that doesn't give you the um, the on a national level like the clout that having you know a fleet of highly uh, accurate robotic killing dog machines like. Um, you know, does like that gives you a lot of clout that yeah. allows you at the uh, negotiating table of, uh, you know, monetary <laughs> and uh, economic pressure like that. That's why we as a nation can declare sanctions on a com- country like Venezuela and like starve most of the people like nearly to death or like why we as a country can, you know, have a relationship with Saudi Arabia where we like refuel their uh, airplanes in what is functionally a genocidal uh, war against some of the poorest people on the planet. But see, then that money comes back to us when they invest in our coffee shops. Yeah. Well, it comes, it comes, it, it, it comes back in a lot of ways, you know, that, like there, there's, there's that. And then there's like the straight up, like, you know, Donald Trump, Donnie deals, you know, yeah. he, he's the person who is, it's like 2019 is definitely mask off time. It's like, you know, Donald Trump's like, Hey, you know, it's $150 billion in weapons deals. What? You're going to leave that on the table. You're going to leave that on the table. That's a lot of jobs, folks. That's a lot of good, good, you know, things for our economy. And like, even though it's like a very, he's like, yeah, it's blood money. Like, what, but what are you going to do? You know, like that's who we are. What do you think? Like, only uh, the 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 bad guys kill people. Like, it, it's, yeah, it's we have a body count too. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like blood money still still uh, spends. You know, like what what are you going to do? You going to leave that that shit on the table? Hell no. Like, uh, America's the boss. Oh man, it's it's um it's dark though because instead of you know the 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 media and the you know the body politic like recoiling horror from the actual fact that we are reliably profiting off of the worst you know violence that goes on in the world uh, at any given time. So yeah, you know I think Donald Trump is just the person who can lay it bare and be like, yeah, we are you know an imperial military hegemon and we uh, gotta own that. And then you know like, uh, whereas you know Barack Obama wouldn't have said the quiet part loud and would have you know said you know we're doing this for supporting our allies and maintaining you know uh, stability and blah blah blah. Like you know you'd have wrapped it up in a lot more like um, thoughtful and like empathetic language. Yeah, not actually being empathetic, but it sounds more empathetic, right? It's like you know, like well, if anyone gets hurt, it's be it's in the the service of a greater good. It's not we're not relishing the violence that we're thwar- that we're putting out in the world. Something whereas Trump is like, oh yeah, it hurts a lot of people, and that's part of the point, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. either that or just like straight up like, hey, this is business, and like this is the way it is. Like what? Right, like yeah. you, you guys going to be babies about it? Like, I, I, I don't know. I find it really interesting because it's the thing that um, the the liberal media class can't really fully articulate the, a, a, a just condemnation of because it's every media establishment, you know, was behind the Iraq war. Like the like the vast majority of them, maybe not like democracy now. There's probably like a half a dozen that like really spoke out against it. But like the op-ed pages, like all the punditry, like the generals, everybody coming in talking yellow cake, blah blah blah, and like 
there's a, a very overt uh, complicity in like the the, the war machine. Um, yeah, and so, but it it has to do with a uh, a narrative that I think in this day and age is functionally dying away, and that like Donald Trump's like the both result and person that can accelerate that the fastest because he can just normalize saying yeah we did 150 billion dollars in uh weapons uh, uh, sales to a country that you know regularly uh commits human rights abuses and is you know fighting a genocidal war that we're militaristically supporting and, and when he says like the iraq war was a bad idea he just uh, he says it's like a bad idea because there's like a bad business uh decision because we didn't take the oil right that's what that's what he says about about the Iraq war is that it was dumb because we didn't take the, the oil. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's what is bad about the Iraq war. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know who is going to be a baby about politics and wants to be the, the, the first baby is Joe Walsh. Joe. Oh Walsh. shit. Yeah. He, he primarying, uh, Donald Trump, uh, along with Bill Wells, the former Massachusetts governor and, uh, running mate to Johnson for is the, it- on the, uh, um, on the, the libertarian line. Is this her wi- wildflower? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to make. Like the, uh, the Republican has beens that are running for president uh, in the primary, like are even more confusing to me than the, the, the various like democratic has beens. And so like, I don't know anything about this Joe Walsh. I thought it was the Joe Walsh from like cops or, it's America's okay. most wanted. America's yeah, most wanted. Yeah, it's we, not that guy. No, that's John Walsh, John and Walsh. I don't think there's a relation. Joe okay. Walsh is a former Illinois rep, and uh, is um, and was like totally on board with like the Obama birtherism, mm. and then is like apologetic about it, Oops. and now he's like, oh yeah, it might be like no, this is all bad, and we need to have norms again, and that's I, as far as I can tell, that's his entire platform is like. Donald Trump is rude. How do you I, how do you bring back norms through an election? I I'm right. Not, yeah, I don't. I, I'm uh, I'm going to I'm going to ban vulgarity. Uh, podcasts are eliminated. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't I don't understand what the thrust of their candidacy is in the Republican. It's like you got to just. I don't I don't get what they're I don't I, I don't know anything about Bill Weld either. Like at least Romney had the Olympics. I don't know the fuck uh like Weld, what what is what is his like what is his form of entrepreneurship? I don't know I don't know. Well as governor of Massachusetts, I think Bill Weld was just like I'm a Republican in blue Massachusetts in the same way that like we give a shit or someone apparently like, gives a shit about the Montana governor that's running say- for president <laughs> now right it was like I, I'm, I'm a Democrat in a Republican state I, I, I'm a Republican in a Democrat I, state I, I, and then I, the, and then like the odd couple music starts playing and uh, and it's like look nothing matters because you can just be elected no matter who's around because this is uh these are all non-functioning democracies with false choices <laughs> I was like, I I don't know why that's a good thing. Like I don't trading. know why anyone would want that. For some reason, I just think of those two, and I just think of like trading spouses. Like, <laughs> like I, I was just like, yeah, I, I took my Republican governor, I put him in a Democratic state. I put like, my Democratic governor, I put him in a Republican state, and we watched him for a couple years to see what happened. I mean, will will even the Republican Party go for this? Like, they are so behind Trump. Like, he's got the highest uh, approval ratings oh, among Republicans of, like, any past president, like, for a while. Like, his overall approval rating amongst the rest of the country is, I think, like, average or so right now. I know in the beginning of his presidency it was pretty low, 
But like uh, right now, I think like most uh, Democrats absolutely hate him. Like and most Republicans absolutely love him. Like, yeah, I, th- I think like the the last numbers I saw was like all voters he has a disapproval or an approval rating of like forty three percent. Yeah, which is like pretty normal, and it's consistent but, for him too. Yeah, yeah. Like but he Republic- has a, he has a floor and a ceiling that's pretty well defined, and he just no matter what he does, it doesn't move. And Republicans love him. Like he's yeah. like consistently polled. Like and why wouldn't they? Yeah, above seventy percent, and his his is he's never gone dips below. Whatever his polling floor is, he's only grown, and then he's reached like a ceiling. They love him. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we're all in agreement, at least with present company. I want to figure out how Brittany feels about this. That uh, the Republican uh, primary is probably going to be a complete flop. I don't know. Yeah, it really just seems like a, like a, I would like a book deal too, please. Yeah. You know, of like the Republicans are like, we want books too. I want. <laughs> I, I want primary debates. Like if they're going to do this, they have to. They have to. They have to have debates, right? They should have debates. I yeah. Want... I mean, can, if, if can the, people if the just account... refuse, like if Donald Trump was just to completely refuse, which I would imagine he would, you know, would given right the, the you know the opportunity, um, like why why would he want to give it any airtime? I, well, I mean, that's how he won last time, right? It was like free airtime because people want to see him do things. So yeah, I, but, I don't, but... I, I I don't see why he wouldn't. The, the question is if any of his competitors uh, gain any legitimacy whatsoever. But they won't. Yeah. We, yeah. I mean, because like, they're boring. Like, I think the, the those two the, dudes are so boring. You've never heard of them. And all that they want to bring back is norms or something. I've never heard of any of them. And the, yeah. the only, their only constituency is a uh, made up media fiction of the never Trump Republican, which don't exist. Like those people don't exist outside of CNN. Like there's he, always a way to rationalize somebody. Like, and you see it really on display in the Trump era because, like, all these same people that were, you know, beating their chest over family values and, you know, hating on Bill Clinton and everything, like, you know, they're they're not even ashamed at all of any of the hypocrisy because hypocrisy doesn't matter. Like, it's never been about being, like, truly about anything. It's about, like, you know, having your guy in power and winning and getting, like, won over on your, your enemies. Brittany and I just watched the uh, the Jeff Charlotte miniseries on Netflix about the family. It's really good, right? So Jeff Charlotte wrote um, the family, and then I think it's something called like C Street or something. But it's basically the same two books about the same organization. And now he's written a third one, I think. But uh, there's also this like six, five or six episode miniseries on Netflix of this documentary about the family, which is just like this, I, the, you know, like the. the it's like a, they have like only like five books of the Bible that they follow along with, or five or six books that they follow. And then uh, they just basically talk about Jesus as if like they're the original 12 apostles. Who, who, who is this person? Like, like, well, so like, there's a, there's a, there's a guy called Doug Coe that died recently. That was the leader of it for a long time, but it's basically just these people that will just um, believe that Christianity or really more accurately following Jesus means finding the most powerful people and getting them on your side. And it's just like, it, it's supposed to be this very informal, but very strong dedicated network of power players that eventually advocate for socially conservative values. And like every president since Eisenhower has gone to the national prayer breakfast, which is organized by these people. Mm. So this is like a long-standing like group. Yeah, it's like the fundamentalist Christian mafia. 
basically. called the family. It's called it, or, the, or the fellowship, or like they they have like a, they basically don't want you to name it something because and this is very true and it's you know it's like Doug Coe, the this leader is like channeling Foucault. In this moment, then think about it. Doug Coe, Foucault, it sounds the same. Think about it. Right. Is, uh, you know, he's saying, um, uh, when you're the most powerful, you're invisible. And like, if you want the more powerful and big your, your agency, your organization is, the more invisible it becomes and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Become the environment. Yeah. Become the environment. And, uh, that's, um, and that's what they, they aim to do. It's very, very huh. creepy. Yeah. All, all I know is, is that like, I think, if Bill Weld and and uh, what's his name? What's it? Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh. Yeah, uh, I was gonna call him like Johnson. Honestly, <laughs> um, if if they uh, if they you know if they're if they're serious with these candidacies, like Donald Trump, like the conventionalism is with these debates is like you don't do it, you don't give your opponents airtime, but like that doesn't work with Donald Trump. Like he's not he's he so he's going to act, of course I'll debate I'll, I'll debate them I'll, I'll beat them uh, and. Uh, It'll be those are going to be like way better than these Democratic primary debates. Yeah, which yeah, of yeah, which yeah. there are still about fourteen more. I, they've <laughs> so got many. They've got a schedule. I I hope honestly six of the Republican debates until what February January whenever the Iowa caucuses are. Right. Um. They have to. They have to have a couple of debates. I I I hope. I mean, it's going to be great TV, and he's absolutely going to lean into the spectacle. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that's how that's how he does everything, right? It's like you if play he, the if Rocky he, theme. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. Always. I mean, like the way that that Trump works is like you just like imagine this battery of emotional energy, and it, you charge it through like doing these massive spectacles. Yeah. And it's only once he keeps doing it that the battery gets charged, and the battery fuels like this very strict floor and ceiling approval rating and it can't and like it it just it just stays there and he maintains it through these charges of of rallies and uh televised uh bullshit he's the only one who's really figured that out like yeah like he's the permanent the permanent uh candidacy the permanent campaign like he never stopped he never stops he never like like on paper he, they filed a 2020 re-election campaign almost immediately. Immediately, yeah. And he's never and he's never stopped campaigning. Most of his like like out of town jaunts are always like a feature like campaign stunts uh, in like strong bases of support, um, or whether there isn't support, like they make it right. Like yeah. th- those uh those um workers that were said like you can either stand oh, in Shell. front of Trump yeah. for this ra- or, yeah at Shell oh. like right it was like uh either you show up at this rally take your paid time off or you don't get paid yeah. Yeah. Uh, for this rally because they, they, they would they classify it as like training, like a paid something, training yeah. day or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So I, 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 I totally believe that like these bill, well, Joe Walsh figures are just, they just want book deals. They want to tour around a little bit, raise their national profile so that maybe, honestly, so that they could probably get into a cabinet position in his 2020 uh, if he, you know, if he re- oh, wins no, re-election. No, no, no. Like, they're, ju- they're, ju- they're, ju- they're <laughs> nope. just applying for nope. cabinet positions. Yeah, but they'd be dumb. He never, ever, uh, like, helps out anybody who's turned on him. Like, that's, like, one of the through lines that if you study Trump, it's, like, yeah. he consistently befriends outsiders, and then they turn on him, and then he casts them out in, like, a continuous uh, flow. Conveyor belt. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. basically, like, how he treads water. That's a good it's point. Like, yeah. You know, he, he gets a lot of people to go to bat for him, 
And then he like, you know, if they say anything critical at all, he's like, very nasty, very disloyal, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, yesterday's news, like, Scaramucci's like behind the PR, like, uh, traitor yeah, uh, <laughs> stuff for this uh, uh, upcoming primary effort or like, was somehow involved. I didn't really follow it, but um, I saw his name come up and I saw Trump was, you know, mad at him for right. being very disloyal and a terrible employee. And very- it's like, you know, you do realize people ought to at least judge you by like the company you keep and the you know decisions you make on hiring people like if you're constantly talking shit about people that you've hired it's like it's probably not them you know like <laughs> like that that's that's a basic sniff test but um but Scaramucci was very disloyal. I mean, like, how do you work? <laughs> how do you work at a place for a week and a half and get fired and then stab your your former boss in the back like that? That's not cool. D- disgusting. disgusting. Oh man. I mean, I, I we all know how loyalty is engendered. You work at a place for about seventy two hours and you come to really like your boss and then he fires you another seventy two to ninety six hours later and that's how you build loyalty. And so to do that to Trump, that's not cool. That's not cool. <laughs> Critical support for Scaramucci. The mooch. The mooch. The mooch. The mooch. Uh, I'm sorry. There will it. be a GoFundMe. Uh, yeah. Maybe in the show notes. I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I got a wildflower. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's uh, let's get into wildflowers. Let's close this up. David Coke's dead. David Coke is dead. He's David fucking... Coke is dead. David Coke is dead. He's, he's dead as hell. Man, he's so dead. It's so yeah. good. I, you know, and what was really cool is what I walked out that day. You know, like, you know, you, you do your thing where you like you wake up and you immediately stare at your phone and you go like, "Why do I exist?" And it tells you in, <laughs> in a new yeah. way every day, right? And then you do that, and then you drink some coffee, and you go outside, and 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 for I saw like David Coke is dead, and I'm like that's why I'm living today. And then I I walk out the door, and it's so beautiful out. It was such a beautiful day. It really was beautiful. The weather yeah. was perfect. There's like a little bit of crispness. You know, it's like no, it's not too hot, but it's very yeah. sunny. It was awesome, and like the birds. He are died tripping. and gave us a fall, like a perfect fall day. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it was so beautiful. I uh, thought, I thought a lot of the commentary about his death because you know, as was always the case, like when John McCain died, like John McCain was a maverick. You show some fucking respect for Megan. She's out here suffering, and I, I pre, I feel like people have evolved as these these people have died. John McCain, you know now. Uh, I'm sure there's other evil people that I like. So many people. We had like a false flag yeah. or, or, a, or a false alarm with Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so and it was these... like die, 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 and then he like clung back he, to yeah, life. He, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they, but as these folks have died, I feel like folks have figured out how to sort of uh, weaponize their like grave dancing and in a way that like they've actually figured out the praxis behind it, um, which has been like. No, if we celebrate their deaths now, that means like the folks who are still alive will understand how their legacy is going to be written when they're dead. And I was like, That's yeah, history, fucking brilliant. History, yeah. Is, history is a weapon. And uh, what Tight. happens, you know, from the, the general um, uh, culture that we're in is that powerful people, regardless of what they did to get in power, regardless with how they use their power, regardless with any type of, you know, um, uh, moral... Uh, uh, you know, consideration to their legacy or whatever. If they're powerful, they are eulogized and they are propped up as, you know, the worthy and the people that, you know, we ought to be like. And 
you know, what was interesting about the Koch brothers, right, is that they were like these donors to small elections all over the United States, like always for the hardest right, most anti-environmental, anti-worker, anti, uh, you know, LGBT, anti, uh, you know, POC, like affirmative action and like and anything that could rally uh, the base for, for that side. Um, they were incredibly effective. And so, what I think is interesting is that it, the, the the dancing on the grave of, of uh, David Koch uh, is that he represents a actual like cleavage point in acceptability of a lot of things within our society. Like he's a fulcrum point for a ton of important um, you know uh, discussions, and to come out as like a bunch of people who are like not at all ashamed of the fact that this guy sucked. And that it's a good thing that he's like done doing evil while he's like alive, making decisions that were consistent in producing suffering and, you know, uh, actual bad outcomes for the people. Um, You know, I think is an important, um, you know, uh, tool within like this this concept of, you know, the the posting war or whatever. But there's this this actual reality of especially with social media, um, quality and quantity matter. Right. Right. But mostly quantity, like the whole thing about like buying elections, right, is you're sending out a lot of pamphlets. You're doing the uh, magics of having your name visibly or auditorially or psychically uh, repeated over and over and over, you know, and like that's what builds strong feelings of of uh, support and or at least recognition and actually wins elections. It's crazy. It's crazy that this is the way it is. But like statistically, you can prove out like a lot of times um, that the way that, you know, money and politics work is that just exposure to people generates loyalty. I mean, that's why Coke still advertises, right? You know, like there's a there's a reason why these like established brands still say that they exist. There's like that. that One of the few onion articles that still stick in my brain that are timeless because now they're very very uh um news cycle driven but there's one timeless one that goes uh, um pepsi increases pepsi awareness by 0.02% as mongolian sheep herder learns about <laughs> product or something like that it was like it was like obviously that's not why they're doing it right they like these companies and politicians say their name a bunch because eventually it you know trickles into your brain like that that's one of the many ways that yeah it becomes the, works, the, yeah. the environment yeah you know, the, environment. The, the, the norms are uh part and parcel with your brand yeah i just think that like so i was driving to we were me and my partner liz were driving through uh massachusetts yesterday and she was like reading um the timeline as i was driving and uh like a new york state like capital reporter like screen capped like someone like doing the grave dancing on, on David Koch and was like, this seems dot, dot, dot problematic. And then she's reading the responses to this like state reporter and they're all like, no, this whips ass. Um, <laughs> actually that, that this is happening. And, and I do think that I, I do think that there is in a way that I don't think has really been uh, prevalent um, throughout, you know, in, in, you know, temporary, you know, in our lifetime, really, yeah, in our yeah. lifetime, is that the willingness to just like, no, you sucked total shit. Um, and as a rich person, yeah, right? as a he's rich like, person. he's like, we we direct ire to all sorts of people publicly all the time, because, right? But, right but, if, yeah. but if it's like a rich person that isn't like a like some strumpet 
a, a Hollywood figure, right? Because like some people will like OD on drugs, and then well, they'll be like, like OD yeah. on drugs. Well, I think it's people like, will like OD, and then it'll be like, oh, well, they deserved it because they were living this sinful yeah. lifestyle. But like David Koch, who died with nearly sixty billion dollars of money, and like changed the course of so many different aspects of our lives, we're happy he's dead. I think it's also just like, what have they left us? Okay, so like you know Rockefeller and the Vanderbilts, like they left us, they left us these like gorgeous like palatial estates or These, carnegie like, who or we, carnegie within the library union they, yeah, just yeah. Uh, uh unionized with the steel precisely they Hell left yeah. us they left us all these palatial estates like along the hudson you know gifted with like hyde park or like the van buren you know farmhouse out in kinderhook and all these things these beautiful things what the fuck is david koch left us what is warren buffett warren buffett lives in like a fucking sub like like a development like you know a mass-produced like mcmansion thing like mcmansion household it's not beautiful no one likes it and so i think like it's just like whereas now you know we can uh you know we can we there's there's no, there's no, de- there's no de- sort of deceptive veneer that the rich folks have offered us. Everything they've left, like the coaches and other folks like them, have left behind us is just ugly, gaudy, um, chintzy bullshit. Whereas, like at least, like you know, Rockefeller was a monster and indisputably, but like his mansions were nice. Like you know, like, <laughs> like there's things I, worth appropriate, yeah, expropriating yeah. in the revolution. Or and it's just like, right? what are we going to get out of these folks? It's just like, there's no, so from there you can, extra, it's just like using that as an example, you can extrapolate like, like there's, these, these folks suck. Like they're, they're not smart. They've never done anything, but at least like, at least like Rockefeller put his wealth to produce something that was like v- aesthetically pleasing for us. <laughs> uh, and it's just like, oh, right, well, you know, that's so nice. The, so, so they don't go to fashion jail. They just go to, you know, the Hague. <laughs> well, I, I just I just wonder if there's like a it's just like like as we're seeing this hack happen more and more as we become comfortable as we figure out the like sort of practical uh like ways to apply this co- this coldness that we have towards these people which we should have which we should always have but it's like it's hard to um it's hard to like operationalize it's like because this well, person's died well because it, it's an it, it's an inhumane or uh, like Instru- uh, yeah yeah it's, it's, th- there's not a lot of humanity behind being excited somebody's you know dead and gone um, because people understand like yeah there isn't really hard black and white moral goods and bads and that everything's sort of on a spectrum and you know everybody's going through their struggles and blah 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 and we and you had sent me a, an article that like blew my mind or that little screen grab that you had uh, uh, oh me. yeah. Yeah, 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 apparently. Yeah. Um, uh, what two Koch brothers? It was it was David and I think so. Fred's the dad, I think, and then there's like David and Charles, and then apparently there's a third brother that was like excommunicated. But yes, yeah. But David and and Charles had a Nazi, literally like like a, a very out and proud Nazi uh, nurse. Yeah, that, that would uh, like demand morning bowel movements at, under threat of like castor oil administration and, and enemas and on, enemas, on yeah, children that were still in their diapers yeah and uh yeah this like is, you will shit within 10 minutes of waking up or like you get uh like assaulted basically yeah so you know Jesus. it's like they're they're definitely in probably all cases of people that are historically horrible uh especially to like large amounts of of other people that they they don't know um, I think that there's often a lot of like stories of like personal tragedy and everything, but like 
ultimately the legacy that people leave behind and the histories that we tell are incredibly powerful devices and people's uh, recognition uh, of their name, the amount of money that they made or the amount of things they influenced, you know, by way of quantity um, ensures that they're going to have a legacy. And so the question is like, what should their legacy be? And, you know, for people in my opinion that were so steadfastly dedicated to, um, enriching the enriched and impoverishing the impoverished and continuing to try and fight any type of democratic uh, reforms or, uh, you know, uh, progressive initiatives by, you know, popular demand. Like, they don't deserve to have a good legacy. Like, you know, that that's something that needs to be stated from the jump. And when they die, it's like the, the, the socially nice thing to do is like, if you don't have anything to say, to say nothing at all. But it's like, no, like, this is important. Like people should not, there should be no confusion about what this person did over the course of their life. Well, I think it's also like, I mean, like what we also, what we're often faced with instead of this sort of like cold, you know, sort of recognition of like well, who these people actually are. What we're actually, what we end up getting in in return is just like this hagiography, right? It's just like, oh, like, uh, you know, uh, this person was a philanthropist. They gave so much of their wealth back, and they fucking they have children hospitals named after them, and and all this stuff, and they got libraries and college campuses, and there and there's an overemphasis on like their their sort of you know pres, you know popularly presented like generosity, but. I think what we're seeing, and I think it's, I, I, I do think it's important to like, you know, it's, it's just like Twitter and like, you know, Reddit and, you know, social media where like a small corner of, you know, the population is actually just like engaged in this like grave dancing is doing something that is like a necessarily put as a necessary pushback against that, 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 uh, sort of revisionist like, uh, history that is being done on the part of like the mainstream media, um, about how great they are. It's like, no, this person actually, I mean, like, I don't think it's I I like to think there's if I believe in God for a moment it's just like it's not a coincidence that like David like David Koch died and the Amazon is on fire right like I mean that's yeah. like it's like he's deliberately responsible for that like I haven't seen any tweets but I I'm sure they've been drafted it's just like oh man we should take his carcass and just throw it in that fire like you know like I think that like that like because that that is his legacy right and it's like the actual and en- en- engagement with that the, the actual legacy uh, of of his wealth because like that is the part that's going to have a long like a like a long-term impact the fucking library that he built or that he funded being built is not his actual legacy um and so seeing folks talk about like talk about this in the sense that like no it's it's good that this person is gone because they've had a over overwhelmingly deleterious effect on society like i think is a is a is a good thing um and it's yeah and i but i also hear like there's you know there's an element of like i don't know it's kind of crass you oh, know, it's super right. crass. Yeah, it's super it's crass. Super crass. But it, the, the, yeah. It's reflective, I think, of the, the moment that we're in right now. It's like when somebody who's super, super famous uh, dies and they, in your opinion of like what is really important to do, which is engage in the politics of like what is good and evil in the world and like how do we move forward and create a better one than being like, yeah, their legacy suck. They suck and good riddance. Because the it, only like, alternative would be like, David Koch taught me how to be weird. You know, like, you know, like I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are two veins of like famous people dying. It's just like, there's the sort of new, like, 
dan- grave dancing. And there's like David Koch taught me how to be weird. He taught me that it's okay to like you know level acres of the fo- rainforest, uh, you know, and 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 uh, that's you know. why I funded an entire yeah. economics department so that you know yeah. I, I could prove that it's actually good to sell child blood. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, I, mm-hmm. you know, if you could like theorize, do some off the cuff theorizing for a second about you know like why. Why now? Why these particular people are the grave dancers, right? You know, like you do have a generation that, like you were just saying, Chris, like hyper aware whether they want to be or not, how to craft their own personal brand, Mm. right? Like we are constantly having to define our own legacies in the moment, right? We ha- we're constantly have to tell other people who we are on all these different platforms. Yeah, there's a permanent record of our continuous, like, thought uh, diarrhea. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, like, and so it makes sense that we all understand implicitly, immediately, and naturally that David Koch's legacy has to be shit on as soon as he's dead. Like, he's just like, we have to be happy that he's dead because that's the record and we know that we are all defined, no matter how powerful you are, you know, like you, we're all defined by the by our memory and how other people talk about you. And so we need to talk about him as the piece of shit, like maladaptive, like maladaptive force in the world that he is. Yeah. Like we have to do that. And is and is yeah. And 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 like I think I also think it's like it's it's just it's just really important to be honest about who he was. Like I mean, yeah. like he. he like he's a Koch, villain. Koch industry, yeah, they're really, they really are like Batman esque, like villains. Yeah. Just like the company started by like give, <clears throat> like funneling money to Hitler. Like it's a it's, like there's a reason why they had a uh, like a Nazi uh, uh, nanny, right? It was like yeah. like they're connected to it, and and that's where they got their money, and then they use that money to turn America into a very you know like it's, it's not hyperbole, right? It's like a very like fascist proto-fascist yeah given the opportunity given the opportunity they tilted toward fascism yeah the entire time yeah yes. the entire time yeah so they were bad go fuck themselves yeah they're dead. all right i don't know how because his, his brother charles is their twins or charles is older like they're all whichever one they're all battery first. Powered, i don't, yeah, I don't know if they came out of the same egg or if they're separate eggs. because i feel like charles like i mean like david's dead and you know may burn in hell but like charles Koch, i feel like is the one that I'm more familiar with, like as a as well. A he's a, he's the one that's still CEO, I think, or you know, uh, otherwise the the prime decision maker with the fortune. So the fortune didn't go away. It's right. function on local and national and international elections. You know, bending the arc of society toward fascism is like still alive and well and going to continue. And there's not much that anybody you know individually can do through a democratic process. But like, I think that the kind of things like uh, grave dancing and, and otherwise are you know very natural reaction within a social media uh body politic like to this type of um you know extreme figure uh, i i I do think like like the coach like there's something there is there i mean he's dead and so we can talk about like how we're stealing from him um and i think we like i think there's elements of which like the coach like in like brothers are like ingenious in terms of how they approach american politics i mean like they 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 spent decades like building up to like the current like right-wing moment that we're in right and and uh they took over state houses i mean act uh act 10 uh which basically eviscerated public sector unionization in wisconsin and then uh was the template for a lot of other anti-union legislation um across the country um it was a work of their own creation yeah, that's Scott Walker, right? Yeah, yeah, precise. And, and like um, Scott Walker was uh, uh, famously not actually kicked out, even though there was like 
daily hundreds of people yeah. like you know in the the state house like trying to shut them down and there's a lot to be said about like whether like the whole like recall campaign was the right course of action that like wisconsin labor took but um my my point is is to say is like they like less they less so than focusing on abroad like though obviously they have eyes abroad and to uh you know foreign foreign power um and who they would like to see with access to it like they 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 think local um they took over state legislatures and stuff like that so that like you know like you know the they they've had it like alec like you were talking about like they've had an impact in, in a ways on in, in the american body politic that are going to take decades to eviscerate and the death of one of them isn't isn't enough um we can hope uh we can only hope that charles like coke like has like a fucking brain hemorrhage like now would be ideal yeah but but even still it's like i have no doubt that the wealth that has been amassed by these people and the fact that they're going to you know have loyalists uh maintain their legacy like it the they're going to continue to be political actors because that's the legacy that the, the the people who are now going to be inheriting whatever wealth and power yeah. you know have to live up to, and that's sort of the whole logic behind like don't hate the player, hate the game. But it's like at the same time we were talking about this earlier mm-hmm. is like uh, the the what is the game other than the players? Like if the players all quit, like the game wouldn't exist, and like the 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 most egregious uh, players of the game, like um, you know, are exemplars of like how messed up the game needs to be, and like how do you change a whole society's opinion? of both the players and the game or at least how do you how do you change a whole society's opinion of the game unless like when some of the most aggressive exemplars of how bad the game is like uh when they croak you're not like yay yeah for real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh so sean uh, what uh, uh do you have anything uh, you want to plug for us uh to talk about sure um so uh i would definitely uh say HTTP, uh, you know, colon, colon slash forward slash the strike wave.com. Uh, I think I said www. Yeah. yeah. The uh, uh, go there. You can read all of our, our OG, uh, content, um, including the recent spot, uh, coffee article, which we were talking about before. Um, you could subscribe to the newsletter there. It's a, it's a weekly newsletter, um, where we send out weekly news roundups of like labor, uh, uh, you know, articles uh, relating to you know bargaining and and workplace you know struggle that's happening across the country that isn't all of these like newspapers that still fucking exist. Um, it's there. It's getting reported on usually by a business reporter, but it's still being reported on, and it's important to keep eyes on it. One of the things that Strikewave is trying to do, and one of the reasons why we're, you know, I'm directing folks to the to the newsletter to subscribe, is that what we were trying to do is create um, a, a venue for more like labor reporting, labor oriented and labor, you know, uh, told stories rather than sort of the stories of capital and the the venture capitalists behind, um, you know, a lot of these that are instigating a lot of these struggles. So check that out. Subscribe. It's a weekly news roundup, and uh, every other week, generally speaking, a new story. We've got a bunch of stuff coming down the pike, some stuff on graduate student organizing, um, and uh, some other, you know, again, more like sort of timeless stories. We want to do an explainer for the New York audience, I suppose. Like, we want to do an explainer on uh, the Taylor Act, the Taylor Law, and what that is, um, and then other things along, you know, that are relevant and current um, to folks. Um and uh, along those lines, uh, this weekend, uh, uh, 20,000 
uh, AT&T workers across the Southeast uh, walked out on a ULP strike, uh, which is an unfair labor practice strike, which means they can't be replaced, which means uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the maintenance of landlines is uh, and the sort of telecom infrastructure across the deep South and, and uh, is, you know, it's not ha- that maintenance isn't happening because these workers are on strike. Um, and so, you know, you know, check that out. CWA workers are on strike across the South. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, yeah, subscribe to the strike wave, read the spot article, which I feel we talked about. And if you're just curious about like upstate organizing, you know, also read about the, the Tesla article that we did in strike wave a couple months back, back in uh, January or something like that. Great. That'll all be in the, in the, in the show notes and, you know, for uh, curated existing labor reporting and, uh, original reporting from, uh, rank and file labor and staff labor, you know, strike wave. Great stuff. Dope. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Beautiful. Thanks. Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks for taking care of me. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Take care. <laughs>